Well, guys, if you've got your Bibles, would you please open to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at the chapter uh, together today and, and a, a lot of neat stuff in this chapter that reminds us of who Christ is and what Christ did for us. Uh, I remind you that the purpose of the book of Hebrews was to call back believers, brand new believers, who experienced the grace of God, experienced salvation from God, but for whatever reason, were turning back to this old sacrificial system to try to ease their conscience and to help them to deal with their, with their current sin. They had they'd experienced God's forgiveness of all their past sins, but, but now they were wrestling with, what do we do with these, these current sins? I feel guilty. I feel uh, defiled. And, and, and how do I move beyond that? And their Jewish friends were saying, come back and offer another sacrifice. Come back. And, 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 and the reason you feel the way that you feel is because you've stopped doing all those things that you used to do. Sometimes the advice of our friends is not always the best. Sometimes what they say can maybe be true, uh, maybe be even biblical, but just not right for that moment in time. Something's changed. Uh, I got a call this week uh, to go out on a, on a, a scene where uh, a person had passed away, and uh, the husband that was remaining that had found the lady dead was just in shock and in grief. And we sat there together for probably five hours that morning. And one by one, his Christian friends showed up. And I was shocked and appalled at what was said. I don't remember exact words, but something along these lines from different ones. Well, if you'd just been a good Christian, she probably wouldn't have died. If she'd have been a good Christian, then God probably wouldn't have had to take her out of the way so he could give you a good Christian. And I sat and I listened and my stomach just turned. Here is a person who is grieving, who is hurting, who is, is hollow. And one by one, Christians showed up and just started quoting their favorite verses to this man. And he just looked at me with his hollow look like. And as they would quickly quote their scripture and then run off, we could kind of put some pieces maybe back together. The Jews had this system that they had worked out that God had given them to point them to the Messiah. And, and that system did that. It pointed them toward Jesus. And we'll see today some more of the symbolism of, of, of what took place in the Old Testament to get people ready for what Jesus was going to do in the New Testament. But once Jesus showed up, the need for all that stuff ceased. And, and yet the Jews kept calling people back to that and trying to, to put them back into that bondage that they had been in with the law. In, in this passage today, he starts off the first uh, five verses talking about the layout of the temple. And I don't want to go back into that. We've already done that. In fact, as he closes down verse 5, if you want to just jump to chapter 9, verse 5, he says, you know, he's describing the, the layout of the, of the tabernacle and the temple. And then he says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, that's not the purpose of, of, of where I'm going. That's not the purpose of what we're doing. So at the end of verse 5, he says, look, there's, there's the layout of the temple. And all of that was symbolic and all of that was important. And we covered that a, about a month or two ago. But then he says, but, but right now, we don't, we don't want to go into that. We're not going to speak in, in full detail. But then in verse 6, he says, now, these preparations, the, the layout of the temple, the way that it was prepared, the way that it was set up and laid out, having those preparations been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section. That would be the holy place, a place that the common people were not allowed, but that the priest could go. So you had the courtyard, remember, and then you pass by that, that next curtain and you go into the holy place, and that's where the sacrifices and stuff would take place and, and, and the work of the priest would be carried out. And the people weren't allowed to, to go into that. 
But the priests would go regularly in the first section, performing their ritual duties. So I want you to, to, to file these words away. They went regularly, and they performed a ritual duty, something they repeated again and again and again. But into the second, that's the Holy of Holies, only the high priest would go, and he only went once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, he's going to say the Holy Spirit used this to, to show us something that was coming, to, to, uh, to show us how that this was a temporary setup that was going to be replaced by the coming of Christ. Um, when the Day of Atonement would, would arrive once a year, it was a huge day for Jews. They would be sacrificing all year long to, to cover their sins. But this Day of Atonement was like the day where God had set aside that, that everything would just be, be done away with. And the priest would get up early that morning. He would go through some ritual cleanings and cleansings that he needed to go through because he was a sinner. Um, he would put on these elaborate robes, the high priest robes, and, and that robe would have a, a breastplate with 12 stones on it that was a reminder to them that he carried the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God, near to his heart. And so he put on this breastplate, and then on his shoulders, on six on this side and six on this side, were six stones, which, which were to represent the fact that he was carrying the people before God. And that's part of what was going to take place. He was, he was going in to represent them, taking them in his heart in, into the presence of God, but he was also carrying them and their sins into the presence of God. So there was this elaborate robe that this, that this priest would wear, and he would get up very early in the morning, and he would cleanse himself uh, uh, physically. Uh, he, would, he would bathe. He would do all that kind of stuff. And then he would uh, put on this, this robe. And then he would begin to perform the sacrifices that day. The first sacrifices that he would perform would be for his own sin. Some estimates say that by the time he reached the, the atonement sacrifice later in the day, the one where he would, he would uh, go before the Lord on behalf of the people. So before he got to that, he would have already, already have offered probably about 22 sacrifices for his own sins. Now it's important to remember this. Anybody that would walk into the Holy of Holies without being cleansed and without going through the ritual would stand the risk of being struck dead by God. And so if you were the high priest and, and, and it was your turn to go in and to serve and to, to carry the blood into this Holy of Holies and you knew that if there was anything in you that still wasn't right, anything in you that had not been atoned for or been sacrificed for, then you would be a little hesitant to walk in there. The, the, the tradition tells us that there was bells that would be on the bottom of the, of the robe that he would wear in and the people would listen for the bells to, to keep moving as he was performing his sacrifice and sprinkling the blood and doing all that. You could hear the bells moving. If the bells ever stopped, it was a sign that something had happened to him, that he had died in the presence of God. I don't know if you remember this or not, but I still I remember it as if it was yesterday when 9-11 happened. And we're getting a live stream of, of everything going on as it's happening, the plumes of smoke still going. One of the things that, that I heard then, and I wasn't a part of the fire department at that, at that time, I kept hearing these sirens go, I'm like, what in the world is that annoying noise? A little while later, I joined the fire department, and I realized that what that is is a motion sensor that's on the, the uniform of our firemen. And what that is is that when a fireman goes into a, a burning building, as long as he's moving, this motion sensor's moving, that siren stays silent. But you let him stop for about a minute, and that siren begins to go, woo, woo, woo. 
And that's done so you can find that person in that house by sound because smoke and everything else clouds your vision. You can't see, but these sirens. And so it was kind of funny. We would go to a fire scene and our guys would fight and they would come out and we'd be changing out their, their air tanks and they would get down on their knees. And, and, and while they're on their knees, we're behind them and we're changing out air tanks. And if they're, if they're set still for too long, that siren begins to go off again. And you see them just wiggle. And they'll wiggle and, and, and they'll set that motion off and, and, and the siren stops. And, and that's the signal. But I remember on 9-11 hearing those sirens and going, what are we hearing? What is that ambulances? What, what am I hearing? And then when I joined the fire department, I realized that's what I was hearing. Was these firemen that had gone in to that burning building, that, 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 that burning inferno, and they did not come out. And we were hearing the sound of those sirens go off. These high priests would go into the presence of God with bells on their skirts and a, 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 a low-tech system to let you know that they're still moving and they're still serving, and, and they would go in. But before he could go in himself, because he would make two trips. I didn't realize this. But the high priest on the Day of Atonement makes two trips into the Holy of Holies. He would, he would offer these 22 sacrifices, and then he would take the blood from those sacrifices and carry those in before the Lord for his own sins first. And he would sprinkle the blood upon the, the, the altar, upon the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and, and sprinkle that blood all in that place. And then he would hurry back out. Now, he was dressed in these robes of righteousness, these robes with all these stones on them. And then when he would come out after that, uh, he, would, uh, he would come out to then offer the sacrifice for the people. And what they would do is they would select two goats, and, and they would cast the, 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 the uh, Urim and Thurim and decide which goat was going to be the scapegoat and which goat was going to be sacrificed. So after sacrificing for himself, he would come out. He would then take off the, the, the high priestly robes. He would put on just a plain white robe, just a simple, low-cost robe. And then he would sacrifice the one goat and the other would become the scapegoat. And they would tie the scapegoat to the horns of the altar outside. He would take the blood that was captured from the goat that was sacrificed. And then he would take that blood back into the Holy Holies. And he would do the same thing again, this time for the sins of the people. When he came back out, they would release the scapegoat. They would place their their hands upon the scapegoat, symbolizing that all the sin is being transferred to this scapegoat. And then that scapegoat was taken and driven out into the wilderness, carrying away their guilt and, and, their, and their, their defiled conscience. And this was repeated year after year after year. Every part of that was symbolic of what Jesus was going to do. Jesus, in all of his glory, all of his glory before the Father is there, not sacrificing for his own sins because he hadn't, but, but he is there representing us before the, the Father. He has got us close to his heart and he is carrying our sins. And then Jesus left that glory behind and dressed himself in flesh. Nothing spectacular, the scripture says, that would draw us to him. Nothing in Jesus' figure, nothing in Jesus' appearance would draw you to him. But be, so it's a picture of that priest stripping back down to the white robe. And then Jesus goes as our sacrificial goat, if you will, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And he enters into the presence of God, back into the presence of God, to offer his blood before the Lord. So that our guilt and our sin and our shame could be carried away, never to be remembered again. 
So this is the, the ritual that would go through every time. And so that's what he's talking about here. They, they would, these priests would perform their ritual duties, and, and they'd go in there, and they would, they would offer uh, the blood uh, for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And by this, the Holy Spirit, verse 8, shows us that, that the way into the holy place had not yet been opened as long as the first section was still standing. Verse, verse um, oh, let me keep going here, okay? That was symbolic of the present age, of that age before Christ came. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, and here's their limit. They could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So this whole system that God had prescribed in the Old Testament... It, it did its thing to, to help the people to see that somebody was coming, that one would come that would take away their sins. But the Old Testament sacrificial system never could purify the people's conscience. You had a scapegoat, and that scapegoat was driven away, but the people still remembered their sins. And they were still plagued by those sins. And this Old Testament system couldn't completely remove the guilt of their sin. And it says all that it did in verse 10, it just dealt with only, dealt only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body, for the outside. And that was imposed until the time of Reformation. Now watch this. That's important, that phrase. It was imposed until the time of Reformation. The time of Reformation was this time when Jesus came to reform, to reform our hearts. The old system, he's saying here, came in and it worked on the outside. It could, it could demand of us that we not kill, that we not covet, that we not commit adultery, that we not lie, that we not steal, that we not worship other gods. It could, it could require some outward conformity and could force the outside to, to come into line. And, and if you did these things, then you paid the price. The problem was, and the limitation with the old covenant was, it never could change our hearts. The writer of Hebrews says this over and over and over again. All that it did, he says, it dealt with, this, this, you, this is the kind of food you've got to eat. This is the kind of drink you've got to do. This is how you wash and cleanse yourself. These are regulations for the body that were imposed from the outside in until the time of the Reformation. So the old covenant couldn't clear their, their guilt. It could just cover their guilt. And the question that the writer of Hebrews is going to return to again and again is, if that system was limited in what it could accomplish, why in the world would you want to keep going back to it again and again and again? If that system didn't really cleanse your conscience, if that system didn't really make you right with God, if that system didn't open up a way for you to come into the presence of God, but just somebody else to come for you, then why would you want to go back to that when you've been offered something that opens the door wide for you to come personally into the presence of God? Are you following me? Do you see what he's trying to say to them? You had an incomplete system that brought you so far, but it stopped short. And it stopped short by design because God knew the only thing that could bring you into the presence of God was Jesus. And so this was a temporary situation that brought you so far and it kept you there until this time of reformation could occur. This time when Jesus would come and would offer his own, his own blood for our sins. And so he leads us up to this and then we get to the part that Ben read for us. He says, but here's, here's where things change. When Christ appeared as our high priest. So we've shifted now from looking at what the Old Testament priest did to what Jesus did when he came. When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, this reformation that's taking place, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, so 
The tent that was made with hands and was part of the creation was the Old Testament tabernacle. So Jesus comes through a more perfect tent, it says. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. So the Old Testament priest had to go in twice, right? Once for his sins and then back out, another sacrifice, and then back in for the sins of his people. Jesus went once and for all. He didn't need to enter in there to offer a sacrifice for his sins because he was holy and he was spotless. But these men had to go in twice. Jesus entered entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. And the result, he says, is that he secured for us an eternal redemption. Now, I know we've talked a lot over the last two months about the, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. We've talked a lot about what Jesus did. And you may say, Rob, you just keep saying the same thing over and over. I hope not. But sometimes repetition can be good. It can help us to, to lock something in. Here's, here's why this is so critical. If we try to earn our salvation, or if we come to Christ and say, okay, Lord, I, I know it's by grace and grace alone, and I want you to save me. Now I'm going to return, and I'm going to do some works to show you that you made a good choice. I'm going to do some works, God, to, to get you to continue to love me and do all that. Then it's grace plus. And when we move from, from a grace alone theology to a grace plus theology, it creates a lot of problems for us. Some people think, oh, that, that fixes a lot of problems. I'm, I'm going to let God save me by grace, and then I'm going to work myself into a place that, that God is, is going to, to love me and to accept me. But, but when we do that, when we, when we revert to these works again, or we do like the Jews were doing, going back and offering sacrificial animals once again, when we, when we go back to our works and we think that somehow that's going to make God love us more, it creates more harm for us than good. And this is a couple of ways that it harms us. Let's say you get it right. Let's say that, that you come and, and, and you, you, you experience grace and then you just want to work, 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 work and, and, and you clean up everything on the outside and you get all your works right. It can lead you then to pride. Look how good I am. God, you made the right choice. When, when you drafted me, you, I, I'm going to perform and, and I'm going to show you that I'm worth everything you've invested in me and it can lead to great pride. If you get it wrong, if you go to works and then you continually fail again and again and again and again, then that leads to depression. And both extremes are not where God wants us to live. He doesn't want us to, to live fear and this guilt and this shame, but neither does he want us to live with this pride and this arrogance of, look at me, I made the right choices, I'm doing everything right. And, and yes, it took a little bit of grace to save me, but man, look at where I am and look at what I've done. Depression and pride, two extremes. But, but both are not where God wants us to, to be. And when we combine grace and works, that's, that's one of the two sides that we're going to end up on. Another thing is that it offers us this false sense of security. It offers us a false sense of security. Here's how that works. I, I came to Christ by grace and I got saved and now I've got to work to keep God happy. I've got to work to, to, to get God to love me. I've got to work to have an assurance. And so when I fail, then I live in unassurance. When I fall short, then I feel guilty and feel like that, man, there's just something wrong with me. I need to beat myself up. And it creates, it, it's, it's, it takes away the security 
the eternal security that Christ provides because now my security rests in how well I do. Jesus saved me, but now I've got I've to do. Some churches teach that theology. And, and that theology of saying, okay, you can, be, you can be saved by grace, but if you don't keep it up, you're going to lose it. And that would be like me coming to you and saying, hey, tell me your, your dream car. What is your, what is your dream car? If you could pick out any car or any truck in the world, what would you want? And then me going down to the dealership, arranging for you to have that car, coming to you and saying, here's the keys to your brand new whatever. And you're going, you're kidding. No, it's a gift. It's a grace gift. I'm, I'm giving it to you. Here you go. I want you to have it. And you go, oh, my gosh. I said, oh, there's just one catch. You've got to make the note each month. And if you don't, we're going to repo it. Now, is that a gift? No, it's just a delivery. It's not a gift. If, if I just show up with the keys and, and say, here it is, and you're going, oh, my gosh. It's what I've always dreamed of. Oh, by the way, all you've got to do is make the note. That's grace plus works, which is not grace at all. And yet that's how some people live. It's how some pastors manipulate their people into doing what they want them to do. Is if you don't do, you know, say this prayer, okay, but now you've got to do everything I tell you to do, and if you don't, you lose your salvation. Here today, gone tomorrow. And it's a great manipulative tool. It's just not biblical. You can get people to do a whole lot of stuff that you want them to do. If you hold that over their head, it's just not biblical. It's not what God's designed for us to, to do and how he's designed for us to live. So it creates this great insecurity. Oh my gosh, how am I going to pay this note? How am I going to pay this bill? How am I going to keep this up? And the Bible says that's not what God's called us to do. In fact, the, the other part of harm, the way it harms us is it makes us live in fear that I won't or fear that I can't or fear of what if I don't instead of the grace that's needed because I know already that I can't. But I also know that I don't have to because Jesus already met every requirement necessary on my behalf. This, this adding works in is actually a, a, a form of unbelief. I don't believe that what Jesus did on the cross in offering himself for me was enough. So I have to add to it. So here's, here's what we've got to decide. Was what Jesus did on the cross enough or not? Was the price that Jesus paid really enough to cover all my past sins, my present sins, and all the sins that I'll commit before Jesus returns and takes me to be with him. Was that enough? That's, that's the ultimate question. And if it was enough, then I am secure. And if it wasn't enough, then I am in trouble. But when I live as if I'll take this grace to get me across the line, and then I'm going to work to let you love me and accept me, then what I'm saying is that what you did on the cross was not enough to make me acceptable. What you did on the cross is not enough to make me uh, uh, righteous before God so that I can enter into heaven. So I'll take what Jesus did and I'm going to add to it. And that's not biblical. And that's not where God wants us to live. And that's what was happening to these new believers in the time of the book of Hebrews. So it, it, it's disbelief and not belief. It leaves us 
uh, immature and unstable. And yet what Scripture calls us to do is to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. To grow in that grace. Grace ought to be something that we mature into, that we, we discover more and more the depths of the riches of God's grace. It's like this multifaceted diamond or stone that no matter which way you look at it, you see something else. That's what grace is like. You don't just come to know it instantly. You have to grow in that grace. And we do that by understanding more and more of what this grace looks like. So the Lord calls us into this. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us is that that we have been saved and everything that's needed for us to be right with God has already been done. Everything needed for God to love you and to accept you and to make you his child, it's already been done. And so he says here, he says, all this blood of bulls and goats and ashes of the heifer and all that kind of stuff in verse 13, all it does is is affect the flesh, the outside. But how much more, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So it's kind of a run-on sentence here. Let's, let's, let's take out some of these modifying phrases and let's just look at the meat of what he said. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience? Now, that's something that the old law could not do, right? We just covered that. The old law could never purify the conscience. Jesus' sacrifice can purify our conscience from dead works, and he does so to, to help us to serve the living God. So he's not saying that you come to Christ by grace and then you never do anything else. But you come to Christ and you you accept the grace that he offers to you. And out of that transformation, that reformation of your heart, wells up in you this desire to serve the Lord, not to get him to love you, but because he's already loved you all that he can. Does that make sense? The whole motivation for why we do what we do changes. It goes from a fear of I've got to do it or else I'm in trouble to he's already done it all. I'm offering this as a, as, a, as a thank you, as a gratitude for everything that he's already done. The whole reason for us doing what we do shifts from doing it to get him to love me to doing it because he's already loved me all that he ever will. So he goes on and he's going he's gonna, to real quick these, this last section here. Is, is really cool. But he says, look, he, what Jesus did, the blood that Jesus shed, it purifies our conscience. It sets us free from the guilt. So there's changing of our heart. Our conscience is clear. We're set free from, from our dead works, and we're allowed then to serve the living God out of a joy that comes. Therefore, this is what Jesus did. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. So he's the stand between us and God, like the priests would do. Jesus is this mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called, this is believers, they may receive the promised inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So here's what he's saying is that when Jesus came, he mediated a brand new covenant. The old covenant could take us so far and then it stopped. But what Jesus did was to mediate this new covenant, to bring us into this new relationship with God. And that new relationship with God secures for us this promised inheritance. And then he goes into talking about an inheritance. He says, in order for an inheritance to be in effect, somebody's got to die. Okay? You don't get your parents' inheritance until after their death. 
Well, in the same way, there had to be a death that occurred in order for the, the inheritance that the Father wanted for us to be transferred to us. And that death that occurred was the death of Jesus. So he redeems us from our transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. In other words, you can't hand it down until that death has occurred. The will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law, okay, every commandment, had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. And he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So he's saying, okay, even in the Old Testament, as all these things that Moses had to do when the, when the law was given, the, the, the sacrifices, the sprinkling of the blood, the, the slinging of the blood out over the crowd to symbolize the blood covering the people, all of that kind of stuff was, was done to point us forward to this mediating work of Jesus Christ, where his shed blood would then cover our sins. And notice this phrase in verse 20. It says that, that he said, Moses said to the people, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Fast forward with me to the Lord's Supper, the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. When he instituted the Lord's Supper, Jesus said almost those exact words. This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. Tying that Old Testament right there to the crucifixion of Jesus. Tying these things together, bridging that gap. Showing them everything we did in the Old Testament, guys, was pointing forward to the the fulfillment that we would find in Christ. In the same way, Moses sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, in that law, in that old system, almost everything was purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus had to come and to shed his blood. Now listen, when these guys made these sacrifices in the Old, Old Testament, it was very specific about what kind of animals could be sacrificed how old they needed to be, male, female, uh, spotless, without blemish. You, it, this, this wasn't just, a, okay, we need six ounces of blood. Somebody go find me some blood. This was a costly sacrifice that was going to cost those people their very best animal. Now, if, if you are raising livestock of any kind, you know that you want to save your best to breed with your other best so that you can produce even more best. But in this system, what's God saying? God's saying, give me your best. And they would bring their best before the Lord. And they would offer that to God. Giving God their best and offering as a sacrifice. And that blood would be shed. Guys, what did God give to us when he offered us his son as a sacrifice? his best. It wasn't just any old blood that could do. It was his best. It was even more costly than anything those people had ever given to God. He says, thus it was necessary, verse 23, for the copies of the heavenly things, that's the temple, the tabernacle of the Old Testament, 
It was necessary for that to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves had to be purified with a better sacrifice than these. So now he's going to contrast again the sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats to the sacrifice of these the Son of God who came. So he says, hey, the, the Old Testament, the copy had to be purified with, with those rites, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, not the man-made tabernacle, which is just a copy of the true, but into heaven itself, and now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So just as... That high priest would enter into the presence of God on behalf of the people to shed the blood and to sprinkle the blood and to cover their sins. Just as the Old Testament priest would do that, Jesus did that even in a better way, he's saying. And he went to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus didn't go to offer himself repeatedly, he says in verse 25, as the high priest would enter the holy places every year with the blood that wasn't even his own. Because if Jesus had to do it repeatedly, he says in verse 26, then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But, as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. There's that picture of that scapegoat, that sin being removed. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So here's what he says. Jesus went once and for all into the Holy of Holies. Not the man-made Holy of Holies, not the temple that was there in Jerusalem, not the tabernacle that went with him through the wilderness. He went into a Holy of Holies that was not made by man's hands, but by God's. It was the original. Everything else on earth was a copy. And he didn't go with the blood of bulls and goats. He didn't offer a sacrifice for himself. He went strictly for us, carrying us upon his shoulders, carrying our sin, carrying us near his heart carrying our sins upon his shoulders. We talk about the weight of our sin that was placed upon him. Into the presence of God to make sacrifice, eternal sacrifice, once and for all, for us. So when we talk about the difference, he's drawing this distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. Here's some distinctions that we can gather from this chapter that we've just read. In the old covenant, it was a regularly repeated ritual duty that the priest would do again and again. In the new covenant with Jesus, it was a once and for all sacrifice. In the old covenant, it was an offering was required for the priest and then also an offering for the people's sins. But in the new covenant, there was an offering of the priest himself for the sins of the people. In the old covenant, it was the blood of animals that were costly In the new covenant, it was the blood of Christ that was even more costly and precious. In the old covenant, access to God was still restricted. But in this new covenant, access to God is granted. In the old, the the effect of the sacrifice was limited to just this external conformity, just changing the the flesh and, and, and bringing you into conformity of these rules. But in the new covenant... 
the effects of Jesus' sacrifice is upon our heart. And he brings about this transformation of our heart, which changes our motive for doing everything that we do. In the old covenant, there was a temporary covering that needed to be repeated again and again. It was one that, that, that left them insecure and fearful and, and, and at work. In the new, there's this eternal redemption. It's a once and for all price that Jesus paid that gives us security, gives us peace with God, and it gives us the ability to rest in his grace and in his work. In the old covenant, it was a bloody ritual and death was required. In the new covenant, it was a bloody sacrifice and Jesus' death was required in order for that inheritance to come to us. In the old covenant, there was an earthly temple with limited access, just a few people once a year into the presence of God. But in the new covenant, Jesus says that veil was torn and access was granted for all of us to come into the presence of God. Therefore, we draw near to him. In the old covenant, the priest would offer the sacrifice. He would leave and then he would return to offer more sacrifices. And that process repeated year after year after year. In the new covenant, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. And then he left. And he returned to the Father. But scripture says here as we close out chapter 9 that he, he came the first time to deal with sin. But the second time he comes is not to deal with sin. But to gather those who are waiting on him. Those who've learned what it means to experience his grace and to live by his grace. Those who are eagerly awaiting his return. Now listen to this. This is what's cool. If I know that I've messed up as a teenager growing up and I knew I'd done something wrong, was I anxious for my dad to get home from work? Hmm. But with Jesus having paid all the price of all of my sins and to make me acceptable in the eyes of the Father, I can eagerly await his return knowing that the penalty and the punishment and all of that's already been paid. And that frees me up to eagerly wait for his return. And to say, as the scripture says, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. How can you want Christ to come quickly when you know that you'll stand before him? Because you know that you stand before him clean, forgiven, guilt removed, conscience clean, everything taken care of that needed to be taken care of. And that's something that this world cannot know apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. So let me wrap it up here. The writer of Hebrews is saying this. The, the old covenant pointed you to Jesus but it can never take the place of Jesus. It, it, it can, cannot bring you into the presence of God. It cannot cleanse your conscience. At best, it will conform your behavior. It will modify your behavior, but it will still leave you empty. There are many people out there today who have said a prayer, who've walked an aisle, maybe even been baptized and joined a church, but they're still trying to prove their worth before the Lord. And they feel empty. 
because we're not worthy. And the only thing that makes us worthy is Jesus. Religion today can do the same thing. It can impose a behavior modification upon those who adhere to it. But it cannot change our hearts. This relationship of grace through which Jesus came and sacrificed himself, it changes the heart of all who truly believe. Religion can't do that. Religion works from the outside in. Jesus works from the inside out. And he does so through a relationship of grace. And that, that relationship of grace is what changes my desire and my motives for doing the things that I do. His sacrifice changes our heart. Let me close with this illustration. The, the old covenant was like a sign pointing us to this fountain of life. Picture yourself walking for days through a desert. And you're at that point where you're dehydrated and, and you're, you're just, you're almost beside yourself. And you think, I've just got to have a drink. I'm so dry and I'm so thirsty and I, I've just got to have a drink. And you come up and there's this sign that says water just ahead. And you go, all right, there's hope. There's hope. There's, there's water just ahead. And, and, and it gives you a, a little map to tell you which direction to go. And there's the water. And you go and you see the water and you taste the water and you drink until your, your thirst is quenched. Are you going to go back and cling to that sign and say, this is the sign that saved my life. This is the sign that gave me hope. This is the sign that pointed me to the water. Or are you going to stay at the water and just drink? When you and I come to Christ by grace, it's all that stuff of the law that pointed us to the grace and said, there's hope just ahead. There's hope just ahead. And, and everything in that sacrificial system was saying, there's a Messiah that's coming and he's going to die in your place and his blood is going to cover your sins and you're going to be set free and, and I'm going to put my laws in your heart and write them upon your mind. And all this is coming and, and all that Old Testament stuff was the sign that said there's hope right ahead. And these Jews saw it and they recognized Jesus and they went to him and they drank and he quenched their thirst. And now their friends are going, go back and worship the sign. Go back and cling to the sign and say, this is this, this law is what pointed me to Jesus. Oh, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm forever in debt to the law. Why would you leave the thing that quenched your thirst to go back and to hang out with a sign in the middle of the desert? Did that sign serve its purpose? Absolutely. Was that sign placed there by God to point us forward to the only thing that could quench our thirst? Absolutely. But it was never put there for us to go back to and to worship the sign. That's not the purpose of it. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Don't discard all of that. Be thankful for all of that. But realize it served a purpose to introduce you to Christ who now quenches your thirst. And his grace does for you what nothing else in that law could do. Don't go back to that law. What Jesus did was more than enough. Rest in that. Be grateful for that. Live in this gratefulness for what Jesus has done for you. 
and watch how that changes your life. It changes the whole reason. Don't, don't get up and serve so that you can make God happy and get him to love you. Realize that's already done. That's already done. You get up and you serve because he's already done it all. And you're just going to say, Lord, you know what? The, after what you've done for me, the least I can do is to give you this day and to give you my time and to give you my worship and to give you my allegiance. I want to serve you because of what you've already done and for what you're yet to do because you alone are worthy. Let's pray together.